0: this little episode can be an advert to anyone who's trying to work out what their PhD subject might be.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Try and have it so all your sources are published and online. (laughs) Yeah, I study early modern Scotland, so (laughs) um, I'm certainly, uh, I certainly don't take my own advice. want to make sure I'm pronouncing this correctly do you care if I google real quick to make sure I'm saying this oh no me? no of course go for it go for it's it shameful if I don't get it right we gotta do, do right by Agnes
0: I certainly there was a lot that I had messed about with and started with in July within university calendars and then of course went off and we're looking at all these other databases and stuff like that and when I came back to making sure that everything was on the spreadsheet, it. it is one of those things where you kind of suddenly it's like it's all uploading in your brain again and you're like oh my god yeah you know this was weeks of of these people and these things and and totally different and it's amazing how quickly some of that can be um not necessarily forgotten but not not at the forefront oh do you know what i meant to ask this already yeah do your name
1: pronounced ashling it is, Ashlyn, yeah. Okay, nice.
0: Hello and welcome to part four of episode nine of We've Got History Between Us. So far we've introduced you to Lorraine McLaughlin, to Project One, to Samantha Carey, and so now it's time to hear about Ashlyn Cudney and her PhD in Scottish history. I was excited to chat to Aisling because of my own research. If you remember from previous episodes, and Lorraine's explanation of the themes in part two of this episode, this internship was named Project One because two separate but connected projects were running simultaneously, and I was an intern on Project Two. Whilst Ashley and Samantha and Nozette were getting to grips with connections to transatlantic slavery, I was poring over university calendars and student records in an attempt to find hidden narratives from underrepresented communities in Edinburgh University's historical alumni. I focused on early female students, meaning Ashram's own research into gender and her previous experience evaluating gendered language were things I really wanted to pick her brain about. Our conversation turned to nuance, to vocabulary and to bias. So in the second half of this episode, we hear from Lorraine again. I wanted to discuss archival theory and whether archival work can be considered free from bias. Okay, so I'm thinking... Before we get into the kind of internship at the Center for Research Collections, I wanted to get to know you a little bit better.
1: So I was wondering, where was it that you grew up? Yeah, of course. So I grew up in the USA. I'm from Indiana and I'm from a very small college town called Greencastle.
0: Nice. And studying at Edinburgh, was that that the sort of thing that it was kind of straight out of school or did you kind of get a, a longer
1: pathway, a gap year? No, so I started um, in my undergrad at DePaul University in Indiana, and so I've kind of done the traditional route. I've gone straight through school, and then that's first where I was exposed to early modern history and the study of gender history and social history, which is what interested me in coming to Scotland, so that I went on to do my master's at the University of St. Andrews. And then, after that, I where I really decided that I wanted to study Scottish history and become a Scottish historian, which led me to the University of Edinburgh so I could work with some of Scotland's leading Scottish historians, like my my supervisors Alistair Rafe and Julian Goodair.
0: Nice, nice. Okay, so you start off your undergrad in America. When When was it that you
1: started getting interested in Scottish history? Yeah, certainly. So I, in in the U.S. education system, we don't do a lot of history pre-revolutionary war. So I had never really been exposed to early modern history at all, which is what I study. So I had taken a couple early modern history courses with my supervisor and my, my advisor at the time, Barbara Whitehead. And she taught a class on the witch craze in early modern Europe, which is where I first became interested in Scottish history through the Scottish Witchcraft Database and studying Scottish witchcraft trials and the the witch crazes in Scotland, which is where I was first exposed to Scottish history specifically. Nice!
0: And so did you specialise in it once you were at St Andrew's type of situation?
1: Yeah, so I did early, I specialised in early modern history at St. Andrews, but I did my dissertation on women in the Kirk Session in Dunfermline in the 17th century. So I focused on gender double standards and prosecution and punishment in the in the ecclesiastical church system in Dunfermline in Scotland.
0: Oh, magic. Okay. Oh, so interesting. My department actually does a course on, well, it's Supernatural World, so it involves witch and witchcraft, but it is a bit bigger as well. Okay, so what's the title of what you're
1: studying here at Edinburgh then? Yeah, certainly. So I'm studying gendered social control on the island of Butte in the latter half of the 17th century. So once again, I'm focusing on gender history, but even more broader, I'm looking at ecclesiastical and secular court cooperation. So how the secular courts and the ecclesiastical courts work together to... To punish person-person in Scotland and to ensure specific forms of, be, of good godly behavior. But then I'm also interested in, in country and rural divide and how that affects different forms of behavior and different types of social control. At its most basic, I'm looking at the gender double standard once again and interested in how far it works in different areas like town and country and how much that... How much geographic area affects the the type of punishments and disciplines and the type of prosecution that's involved. Hmm.
0: Oh, fascinating. Is there any reason why you picked Iobute?
1: Very practically. They well, there's two very large reasons. First of all, practically they have all the records that I want. They So uh, to nice do start. what I call an all-courts perspective, you have to have records from both the ecclesiastical and the secular court systems that are affecting the communities at the exact same time. So very practically, they had both of those available, which is rare for early modern Scotland, because oftentimes the Kirk Session records survive, but the sheriff's court doesn't. So the... A miracle happened and they all happened to be, happened to be available to me. But then also I'm very interested in differences between lowland and highland when it comes to individual behavior, because in highland Scotland, we don't have the same kind of wealth of records to be able to understand the type of gendered social control that perhaps we can in lowland Scotland. So I'm interested in the way that the merging of highland and lowland culture and and norms affects different types of behavior.
0: And before the internship, had you been interested in
1: the heritage sector and in collections and archives? Yeah, absolutely. So during my, my undergrad career, I had volunteered and been a fellow for the Peeler Art Galleries at DePaul University, where I curated multiple galleries and did research for the archivists there, one on African history. It was called Rethinking African History from Traditional to Contemporary, which was in the Emerson Admissions building there. And then another called Infinite Splendor, Infinite Light, which was about Tibetan history and about um, specifically Tibetan art and Tonkas. And then um, I did another on Russian art as well. And so that was all during my undergrad career. And then I also worked at the DePaul University and in Indiana Methodist Church Archives as an archivist assistant for about a year during my my final year during undergrad. And then when I was at the University of St. Andrews during my master's, I volunteered for the Museum of the University of St. Andrews to work for their program called Baby Musa, which was a like a children's education program, which was about once a month, where we put together activities in the museums and led different activities, brought out different objects to teach them and to get them involved in the museums. And then I also worked as a volunteer registrar for the Scottish Fisheries Museum during my master's as well, registering objects, taking care of objects, and working to do an exhibit on the Great Tea Race.
0: Nice, nice,
1: cool. Well, wow, that is a definite yes then. Yes, yeah. Exciting. Absolutely. That was a really big project that I worked on. I was a summer research fellow at the time, and now the, that 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 gallery space actually travels to different museums and different universities across the US so they can rent it out for a specific specific time period. So that's really, it's really nice to know that my research that I did during that year actually is getting to live on and getting to travel with the the exhibit itself.
0: Oh, cool, yeah.
1: Yeah, it sounds
0: like you've done quite a lot with exhibitions in a way. I'd sort of said before that it felt like it linked to your studies. I, I won't just say that. I, I'll ask you: What
1: do you feel that way? Do you feel it was linked to your studies? I think um, content-wise, not necessarily, but the skills that I've gained during all of during all of these experiences have absolutely linked to my studies. I mean, being able to work in the archives absolutely set me up for first of all, just knowledge about how to navigate archives, mm. because I think that. As an early researcher, it's intimidating walking into an archive and figuring out how to discuss these things with archivists and looking them up on your own. Um, so it really gave me the confidence to be able to do that on my own, you know, as a researcher. But then also just learning how to, to write concisely, learning how to present information for a wider audience, that, that these skills that I gained during all of these heritage and research sector experiences have absolutely helped tie to my, my current research. Nice yeah
0: yeah lots of experience of sifting through documentation and formal documentation and things like that Absolutely. yeah I guess and that can all be brought to the internship going on here at the moment because it feels like that's a lot of what we started off with nice how you come into the into contact with the CRC before maybe
1: through work or just being a student there yourself Yeah, absolutely. So the the only time I've had the opportunity to come into contact with the CRC was as a student. So whenever I've had to request or read rare rare books and materials that aren't able to be taken out of the library.
0: So it's, it's interesting that you kind of, you've already picked up on the idea of nuance. I feel like that was a running theme across all three of the projects in a way and kind of what we were talking about a bit before of like what is going to happen with this data in the future, where is it going? I was wondering based, well, based off the internship that you've been working on for the past few months beforehand working in previous different places the exhibitions that you worked on I was wondering if you did have some words on the potential of archival and collection work or indeed the nuances of some of the language some of the ways that we're describing the people that we're finding stories about
1: absolutely so first and foremost I think I have something to say about the way archives code their data um Hmm. I worked on a project with the School of Informatics, and the Group of Data Culture and Society, where I worked as an annotator looking at archival metadata descriptions, and I was analyzing them for gendered language. And there's yeah. quite a bit of that, where you'll refer to a man as James Buchanan, but then his wife is Mrs. James Buchanan, or Mrs. Yeah. Buchanan, and she never has a first name, or using quite coded language, like businessmen and or workmen instead of just the gender neutral, like workers or whatever and so i think that moving forward first and foremost i think we need to go back and rewrite a lot of metadata description to to allow for research to be done because so much because i wouldn't think i found an instance where instead of calling a woman an author they called her an authoress what's an authoress? i mean i would, I would never have thought of seeing that in my entire life and so so she would have if i was looking up authors i would have never found this woman ever because I wouldn't think of using gender terminology that way because we don't, like in, in mo- you know, modern archival research, we we don't use language like that. So I think first and foremost, there's a responsibility to go, on the part of archivists to go back and <laughs> recode data because it it will allow for future research to be done, not just for gender, but also for the research that I was doing. There was quite a bit of a very racially insensitive language in the archives, which I think that when you're verbatim explaining exactly what they're talking about is, is one thing, but when you're describing the data, it's another. So I think that there's a responsibility to go back and look at things like that. But then also, I, I'm very passionate about recontextualizing public history. And When we have wealth of information, like what we have here for this project, that it's a responsibility to to go back and to look at how we're how we're presenting public history to to tourists and to the people of Edinburgh and Scots in general, and to and to think about not only putting your best foot forward but but an accurate depiction of of the involvement and the political and the military and the economic involvement in connections with the rest of the world, be that positive through, through good natured trade, but then also through transatlantic slavery and military conquest as well. So really my hopes for this project is that it's taken up by somebody or better yet a group of somebodies who are able to really spend years pushing this forward because it's as wonderful as it is that we were able to do this legwork. It it only takes it so far. It really takes somebody else to look at all this data and to, and to create an action plan.
0: Yeah. Oh, totally. Nice. Yeah. I I guess it's such a long-term responsibility and it's such a long-term shift in terms of the ways that archivists so often used to try and describe themselves as impartial, which is almost impossible or it is impossible for humans.
1: I think it's difficult because I, I think that we tend to be we just, we tend to have more gender neutral language now, We mm. tend to be more comfortable using it. Whereas when you're looking at old metadata description, which might have just been copied over really quickly to get into like the, the, the database of the online databases, you often see quite biased language. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and not just a rewriting in terms of whether you would wish to change some of the description, also just adding to the description, adding to the key points that you say about, you know, maybe not being able to search or find that person because they weren't under author.
1: Absolutely. My my biggest qualm with like archival online databases is with as much effort as archives are trying to do in this, in this modern age, especially a post-pandemic world, trying to put things online so they're more accessible, they... They, and they do a great job in a lot of things, but in some of their older materials that perhaps aren't looked at quite as often, there's just nothing. The not to call them out, but the National Records of Scotland, I'm constantly looking at things, and I'm like, this is great, but I, I don't know what's in it. You know, I'm glad that they have this these commissary court records from 1600 1800, but I don't know where the gaps are. I don't know how much how many pages it is. I don't know how much information's in it. So it's so it Mm. makes a lot it makes it very difficult to to work from home like we're having to do right now
0: totally yeah i feel that
1: (laughs) yes i'm sure you do
0: the internship started remotely obviously a lot of restrictions pandemic wise but then that kept changing were you able to go on site as well
1: i was not I was not able to go on site but to be fair most of my my research was online anyway so it didn't necessarily affect the the quality and the content of the research that I had.
0: Oh yeah totally and you had said that you were looking at stuff
1: with the national records Mm -hmm. did you go on site there? No the national records they're by appointment only right now because of COVID so we so unless you absolutely have to go in they want to keep you online as much as possible yeah the reality of current circumstances so you didn't see any kind of objects and collections in person it was it was very much a digital kind of deal it was I was able to look at some of the documents online that had been published online but those were kind of few and far between I know that i um, right now a lot of archives are working tirelessly to to publish online as much as they possibly can but the reality is that a a lot of works are copyrighted sometimes and they can't be published online Mm. or they just haven't gotten to them yet because they're working on the the collections that are most popular and so which makes sense um so I was able to see some but not but not the majority. Fair yeah yeah.
0: for me working from home spending five months on it there were so many things that you know perhaps in an office you would have come across that bit of information and and you know distracted whoever was next to you type thing of listen to this or i found this or something like that it wasn't going anywhere per se it was just whether there was something that kind of i guess i guess there's sometimes like a lonely aspect to doing all these research and finding or like filling your head with all these stories to then sort of be at home yeah and working
1: remotely Well, um, I'm I'm more than happy to talk about how how we do collaborative research projects with, you know, in the new age of working at home. Um, So we had a a Teams chat, obviously, where we, we could go back and forth. And we often did sharing different archives that we found really useful or different sources that we found interesting, which was a great way to begin. We had, Bi-weekly, I believe, conversations with each other, just checking in about if we had any questions or just to share this kind of information. But um, but my husband knows quite a bit about, about Edinburgh's connections to transatlantic slavery now, just by the virtue of sitting next <laughs> to me while I was doing the research. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that if I had been working in an office, I might not have shared all of that information with him. And if the point is to to get the get this information to the public, then then that's how we then that's how we do it. Researchers are often criticized for only sharing information with each other, and so <laughs> if, this, if this facilitated sharing more information with you know my my coworkers, with their roommates or their friends, then I think yeah. that's an absolutely a benefit. Benefit of this, of working from home on this project.
0: Oh, certainly, yeah. Well, likewise, I in family group chats and things like that you know everyone would be swapping news and I'd be like let me tell you about Elsie because I've been thinking about her all day.
1: Yeah one of the archivists just emailed me one time randomly and was like would you like to tell me a story about like something you found interesting in your research and I was like do I want to tell you a story? (laughs) Certainly I do. Um, Settle in. Yes we did find ways to to, to talk about these things but you're right absolutely if I was working with somebody right next to me I would have just turned to them and told them about what I was finding and and working from home does take away that kind of um that kind of team feeling a little bit
0: yeah I think as well perhaps for people who are coming at it from you know maybe they're interested or or maybe they're not quite sure what's in this in the center for research collections in the National Records. People don't always understand how much time this takes. You know, you were working on something for five months and and ended up with close to 400 kind of links and entries, which is incredible. That must have taken hours and hours.
1: It certainly did. I think that having things online, my I, I'm the biggest advocate for it because of accessibility. I think oftentimes for family historians or people that um perhaps aren't, or haven't been involved in archives, or, or in museums, or large libraries like this. That that research like that can be intimidating, and so on. You know, through these online databases, it's your first entry point. And when it's difficult to understand what you're looking at, or there's just not a lot of information, that just adds to the difficulties that that people have to to really start researching. But there's some great archives out there. Um, Scotland's People does an excellent job of posting their stuff online I took a. I did a lot of training in paleography and the first time I looked at Scotland's people I was humbled by the (laughs) handwriting and being able to read it so um but I think that in general they do a really great job um so certainly this is this is not me um digging archive I I love archives so I think I think that um by putting things online it just makes them more accessible
0: oh totally yeah I think the majority of the stuff that I ended up doing once I'd found what data was available for myself with the female students I went to Scotland's people and I was trying to find them through birth data census data and that you know so much work has been put into that but then it's a paid for service if the hours are going to be provided on on the amount of time it takes then I think a lot of people presume the internet is just you know it can be found if you look hard enough but actually so much of it is still behind closed doors.
1: Yeah, the the pay gates that are that are involved with archival research I think is is really unfortunate. When I when I worked at the archives with through DePaw, I was always I I loved working through the archives at DePa, but I was always horrified by the amount that it costs to to scan research to um to scan sources to other researchers. That there is a there is a huge cost to doing research. Yeah yeah
0: in previous parts of episode nine we've already heard lorraine talk about the recent impetus to put issues such as representation and balance at the forefront of an institution's action plan and that's across the heritage sector as a whole how this shift that will take decades and generations to unfold is a long time coming an Ashling's example of an authoress stood out in its simplicity the description placed on this person their job and the material placed in the archive has directly affected how researchers may interact with this evidence in the future. Google the word authoress, and it sits under headings such as dated and old fashioned. I was really hoping Google might say, did you mean author? But some dictionary definitions also included the word derogatory. In a way, it doesn't come as a surprise that interns came across outdated terminology during their in-depth research into minority communities and transatlantic slavery it be entirely fair, if not realistic, to prepare yourself to deal with insensitive and or outdated language. We know that history implicitly and explicitly displays evidence of discrimination and a lack of equality in our society. But you also wonder how, as we look back in order to look forward, what things might come as more of a surprise than we were expecting or hoping, what we may need to examine in our own blind spots, our own perceptions, so that when we look at more complex cases than the author versus authoress example, that we will be able to spot them as quickly. In earlier parts of episode 9, Lorraine and I discussed the fact that we, we as an everyone, can get comfortable presenting material that has come before, that has been celebrated and promoted without always considering the lens that it was presented from, or the ramifications that the events within factual information would have had. Which university student hasn't heard their lecture digress into a rehearsed spiel that you've definitely heard from them before and smiled before glazing over? It's easy to stop actively listening or to tune back in for what you consider the personal highlights. As Ashling says, we have a responsibility to recontextualise history. And as Samantha suggested last episode, that's not to rewrite, to hide or to shy away. It's to make it more accurate. It's to actively listen question and consider. Any material once placed in an archive begins a new pathway in its storyline, one that the institution that it was placed in is now a part of. As Lorraine suggested, we cannot know what or how many secondary values will become attached to the material or the discourse that begins to surround evidence in the CRC collections. So after discussing topics like gendered language and archival coding with Ashling, I wanted to get Lorraine's take on the topic of subjectivity and bias, would you say that archival work can be considered unbiased?
2: The short answer there is, is no. No, it's not. It, it, it can't be. This, and I have touched on it before, but basically, yeah, it comes back to my own ethos, but that is an ethos that is shared by the archives team more widely and, and other archive professionals in, in different sectors and, and, and different organisations that uh, we, we can't remove ourselves and uh, we can't remove our own histories from how we make decisions and how we catalogue and how we make value decisions around archives and so in a sense although we have to be as straight down the middle as we can possibly be we also just have to accept that we're human beings and we have perspectives Um, and that as long as we can be accountable for those decisions and describe why we've made those decisions, then that is really the the best we can do at the moment. Saying that, I do think it would be interesting to include as much archival theory or as much theory as possible to do with culture and memory and identity like we were saying we had already touched on this but as much uh, learning as possible when training to be an archivist around how different communities different cultures and different individuals have different perspectives on on life on rites of passage on education on representation and uh, really, that as long as archivists are are open hearted and open minded to that to the importance of learning about p- power, memory, and identity in records, then that's all we can do really to try and counter biases. It's like any researcher practicing
0: reflexivity. Mm-hmm. Understanding their part of it.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, it it is. Um, I suppose that's why it's important as well for us as archivists to communicate with other academic areas and and to kind of reassure people that we're aware of of things like subjectivity and lack of objectivity that is entailed with archives. But really, it's been a kind of an evolution as well of archival theory. So obviously, archives have existed for thousands of years but the field of archival theory is only around 100 years old. Prior to to that, there was a, a long succession of individuals or groups of people who just archived in a particular way and made sure it made sense and then kind of moved on to the next thing. But really in the last century and certainly last 30, 40 years, archivists as a kind of an international group are really trying to make efforts to to be as nuanced as possible around how to archive while being consistent and using agreed guidance and standards where possible, so that there's legibility. Have I left that hanging?
0: No, 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 I don't think so. I couldn't hear it. Was that a question
2: to yourself before? I couldn't quite hear what. Oh, no, sorry. That was me talking to myself. Yes. I was kind of, I was thinking, I was, I hope I made a point there. (laughs) (laughs) Did I actually get to the end? I remember
0: when I recorded the first one of this I had such a strong memory of everything that the other person had said but I had to listen back to what I'd said because I had <laughs> I'd had an out-of-body experience of everything that was happening yeah, especially because it was live. Every, yeah.
2: When I'm starting on a big long ramble about something at the very beginning I know exactly what I'm going to say and then by the end I'm like was I talking about something very specifically? <laughs> Yeah. Do please tell me if I've left something completely in the air and haven't made a point if you notice.
0: <laughs> no no totally I know everything's been fantastic and I think the thing about so many of these things is there's not there's not one thing to say there's or there's not an end to the conversation it's is all these massive massive kind of topics.
2: Yeah um, actually I've just I just wanted to kind of I remembered now what I was going to round up about that point about archival theory and, and, and everything. And you know, in the past people doing it a certain way. a 100 years ago now there was kind of Jen- Jenkinsonian, Hillary Jenkinson and Jenkinsonian theory, which is that uh, the archivists should have absolutely no say in what goes into the archives and should make no judgment calls basically on, on, on what what is recorded. And of course, with the huge volume of material and the historiography that's in danger of happening there, archivists said, well, no, we can't really, you know, we have to be in some way involved in what comes in. And then came later theories around being, you know, directly involved in what comes in and how it's described. And and so anyway, fact is that methodologies and um, around decision making, around value, around who is making the decisions and why they're making decisions is constantly changing. Mm to try and address things like bias yeah, yeah. It's like it's an iterative process it will never be over we've kind of accepted that we're not neutral and so we are going to have to constantly question our, our decisions and review what's been decided before and change based on what's necessary
0: mm. yeah the very presence we've now got to know the background of the interns and their line manager We've talked bias, symbolic annihilation, addressing imbalance and the power of ordinary individuals' lives and stories. In the next episode, I asked Samantha and Ashing to talk about a memorable narrative that they uncovered or material that stuck with them even after the internship concluded. After five months of researching people's lives in detail, it was important to me that when I sat down with Ashing and Samantha, that we didn't just talk about this material on a surface level. I wanted to hear names, places important moments for them on this five months journey. Still to come are episodes on how we describe people on descriptive metadata and advice for future interns. We're hoping you're enjoying every part of episode nine of We've Got History Between Us and I encourage you to get in touch with us about the topics we're raising in these episodes. You've been listening to We've Got History. These episodes were recorded in December 2021 and March 2022. This was part of episode nine. The guests were Lorraine McLaughlin, Ashlyn Cudney and Samantha Carey. Episode hosted and edited by Lily Mellon.